Today's episode of Hidden Forces is made possible by listeners like you. For more information about this week's episode or for easy access to related programming, visit our website at hiddenforces.io and subscribe to our free email list. If you want access to overtime segments, episode transcripts, and show rundowns full of links and detailed information related to each and every episode, check out our premium subscription available through the Hidden Forces website or through our Patreon page. And remember, if you listen to the show on your Apple Podcast app, you can give us a review. Each review helps more people find the show and join our amazing community. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. What's up, everybody? I'm Dimitri Kafinas, and you're listening to Hidden Forces, where each week I speak with experts in the fields of technology, science, finance, and culture to help you gain the tools to better navigate an increasingly complex world so that you're less surprised by tomorrow and better able to predict what happens next. My guest this week is David Rosenberg, Chief Economist and Strategist for Gluskin Chef, a wealth management firm based out of Toronto, Canada. David and I recorded this episode only hours after the FOMC concluded its two-day meeting this past Wednesday, where the committee decided to keep the Fed funds rate unchanged, but strongly signaled a willingness to begin easing, possibly as soon as next month. It is David's conviction that the Federal Reserve has over-tightened monetary policy during this cycle, possibly by as much as 100 basis points, four rate hikes, and that Jay Powell and the Board of Governors of the Fed are worried that they may have precipitated the bursting of another bubble, only this time it isn't in housing or consumer credit, but rather in the corporate bond market, where multinational corporations have feasted on the issuance of trillions of dollars of new debt used to finance mergers, acquisitions, and share buybacks, all while simultaneously cutting back on the type of capital investment needed to service their debts and grow their businesses. The last 10 years have been a great time for stocks, fueled by a bonanza of free money coupled with an implicit guarantee by the Fed that it would support asset prices at all costs. But the question has always lingered, what will happen as the Fed continues to raise interest rates, normalize its balance sheet, and tighten monetary policy? Is this a new paradigm of financialization where fundamentals no longer matter and perpetual liquidity is the name of the game? Or is the global economy's increased reliance on debt financing in order to drive earnings and levitate asset prices no more sustainable today than it has been at any prior point in history? Is this time truly different? As always, subscribers to our Hidden Forces Patreon page can access the overtime to this week's episode, which includes a discussion about how David is positioning himself and his clients for the likelihood of a recession and return to bear market territory for stocks and commodities. We discuss the US dollar, precious metals, currencies, defensive stocks, as well as why David believes that we're going to see yields for 10-year treasuries drop below 1% during the coming downturn. And with that, let's get right into this week's episode. David Rosenberg, welcome to Hidden Forces. 
Thanks for inviting me on. It's great having you here. How many days are you in New York this time? Oh, well, this particular time I'm here for a couple of days, but we have uh, quite a few clients, the Gluskin Chef, in the New York area, and invariably I'm asked to give uh, speeches at different events. So I'm probably in uh, New York uh, every four to six weeks. So when people ask me, you know, because I, I lived here from 2002 to 2009 when I was Merrill's chief economist, so people ask me to this day, do I miss New York? But I'm here so often that I don't get a chance to. That's interesting. You're from Toronto, right? From Toronto and uh, been back there for the past 10 years. And uh, are you a uh, Raptor fan? Or are you a happy Raptor fan? Well, uh, <laughs> I'm actually a Dallas Mavericks fan. I can explain that. But uh, I, I, I hopped on the Raptor bandwagon with full force, I might add, during the uh, series against the uh, 76ers. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So uh, you think about it as a... Uh, as Toronto's team, but it was really Canada's team. What was incredible were all these Jurassic parks and all these different cities, some of them with 20,000 people, you know, going crazy at these basketball games. You know, you think of um, Toronto or Canada, you know, as hockey, but uh, basketball is very popular. So, David, you're here for the FOMC meeting for quarterbacking, not Monday morning, Wednesday afternoon quarterbacking. <laughs> Just for those listeners who aren't familiar with you, you're the chief economist and strategist at Gluskin Chef, and you've been doing that since how long? When did you start the firm? I actually, it's been 10 years uh, and a month. Uh, after you left Merrill? After after I left Merrill. I left Merrill in, uh, in May of 2009. I was at Merrill combined uh, almost 10 years as well, the first three years in Toronto and the last seven in New York, but mm. been doing this gig at Gluskin now for uh, for the better part of the past decade. So what do you think? Today we I watched, I assume you did, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. I, mm. I watched the post-press conference, the Jay Powell press conference, and we got the rate decision, no change in the rate, but the word patience was taken out of the statement of for forward guidance and there seems to be some sense that they're taking a more accommodative stance but that's pretty much it i mean what did you get out of this well look you know the first pivot at the beginning of the year was powell basically walking back the rate hikes that the fed was pledging in december when they actually hiked interest rates hard to believe that they did it when you look at what's happened ever since Today was just going a step further. You know, the Fed historically is a very incremental institution. And so today was basically, in the old days, we would have called this shifting to an easing bias. Mm. So they shifted to a basically a directive that's saying that our next move is likely to cut interest rates. And I would refer to this basically as, as just extra guidance in that direction. Mm. The bottom line, I mean, as you mentioned, uh, no big reaction one way or the other. Well, I guess if anything, the equity market liked it and so did the bond market. But a lot of this was already priced in. Mm. And uh, I think you can almost argue that whether you're a policy hawk or a policy dove or you see the Fed on hold indefinitely or you see the Fed cutting interest rates in July, there's really something in the statement and something in the dot plots for everybody today to hang their hat on. Hmm. So the market's fully priced in a 25 basis point cut in July, right? Uh, we're almost there, yeah, absolutely. And basically at least two cuts by the end of the year. But uh, July seems to be baked in the cake. And frankly, uh, I don't have a problem with that. I think the economy is weaker than is generally accepted. And I think that there's a lot of folks in the Fed getting increasingly frustrated over this constant undershoot of the inflation target. Hmm. And that's their cover to cut interest rates. I, I would actually just say that 
And based on my analysis, the Fed has over-tightened the cycle by three to four hikes. Mm. So I would actually say they got to walk back three or four of these moves just to get back to neutral. I think the Fed is actually on the restrictive side. One of the areas I would have to admit I agree with President Trump on, I might handle the communication, we, the communication a little differently. But on the the Fed's restrictiveness, you see, I don't think the Fed is at neutral. I think the Fed is actually quite tight. Mm. So you're thinking 75 to 100 basis points at least, and well, that they should have already been cutting by now. Well, uh, 100%. I would say, actually, there's two scenarios here. And if you look historically, here's what happens. Even in a soft landing, or the economy slows, the Fed cuts rates as an insurance move, and it's uh, successful in forestalling a recession, the Fed never goes once or twice. The Fed goes three times in a soft landing scenario. If this becomes a recession, which is my forecast, historically the Fed cuts the funds rate almost 500 basis points. So you could see that if this is something more than just a soft landing, if this is something more than just, oh well, Market trade turbulence. concerns or tariffs, but something that's classically late cycle, inverted yield curve, following a Fed tightening cycle, if there's something more to this than just trade and we morph into a recession, then the funds rate is going back to zero, and I would hazard to say back to zero in a pretty big hurry. Do you think that we're already in recession? I think it's a pretty close call. I know that people will say, well, how can that be? We had a real GDP of 3% in the first quarter. Atlanta Fed's taken their number to 2% in the second quarter. Of course, we just had those decent retail sales numbers. People would be surprised to know that the recession call does not come down to GDP. GDP, more often than not, tends to decline during a recession, but the final arbiters of the recession call or the expansion call is the National Bureau of Economic Research. Uh, and I say this with a tip of the hat to uh, Martin Feldstein, who headed that organization for many years, who passed away hmm. last week. But there's four basic tenets to the cycle. And guess what? GDP is not one of them. People seem to think that back-to-back -back quarters of negative GDP defines a recession. Actually, not true. That's a Wall Street colloquial. You'll find plenty of recessions where there are not back-to-back -back quarters of negative GDP. It just so happens that GDP is soft, but it doesn't even have to decline. If you go back to 2001, where we actually had a recession from March to November of that year, you'd say, where was the recession looking at GDP? Mm -hmm. Four basic tenets. Real business sales, that's manufacturing and trade, industrial production, employment, and real personal income, excluding government transfers. Mm -hmm. And three of those four, employment, I'm talking about the household survey, which is more accurate than the payroll survey at turning points in the economy in both directions. Household employment peaked in December. Nobody seems to talk about the fact that it's down roughly 200,000 year to date, all mm. in full-time jobs. That doesn't seem to get a lot of play. Mm. And in fact, I was surprised that in the press statement, the Fed actually talked about the strong labor market. Yeah. It's not all about a 3.6% unemployment rate. There's been almost 200,000 household jobs lost this year. Again, I don't see many economists talking about that particular metric. Industrial production peaked in December. That's down at, uh, at over a 2% annual rate so far this year. We're on the precipice of probably seeing, uh, for the first time in three years, a sub-50 ISM reading. But industrial production is already in a recession. Thirdly, we have uh, real organic personal income. That peaked in December. It's actually down at a 1.5% annual rate so far this year. The only thing that's really hanging on is real sales. And of course, the retail sales number you know, gave that boost last month. But I would say that the sort of recession I'm defining here is a capital spending-led recession. It's not about the consumer this mm. time. That was the last war. 
It's not about housing, which has already been in a five-quarter recession. This is more like a 2001, 2002, what I would refer to as a mild capex-led recession. And I think that those are coming out in the capital intention surveys that we're seeing. It's certainly coming out in core capex orders, which are negative 3.5% over the past six months, which is telling you that corporate spending in the real economy is going to be weak for the next several quarters. I go back to the first quarter of this year, people talk about the three-handle on real GDP growth. Of course, you can manufacture that with uh, surging soybean exports mm. and lower imports and bloated inventories. But the point I'll make is that but the numbers that stuck out to me in the first quarter was the negative 1.1 on capital spending. Are we seeing a lot of slack? Well, Excess I, capacity? N- well, not in the labor market. We've hit the wall Industrial. on the labor market. Industrial, absolutely. You can see it in the declining CAPU rate. Right. I mean, it might have ticked up last month with the industrial production number, but the CAPU rate has been declining. And that is reinforcing a view of slack in the industrial sector. And of course, alongside that, decelerating pricing power, which is coming through in the profit numbers, which have been steadily revised this year, Q1, Q2, Q3. Mm-hmm. You mentioned... Chairman Powell's point about there being a tight labor market, he said that in the context of consumer spending coming back in the second quarter. Mm-hmm. And that was part of a larger point he made that he said it's a complicated picture, that some of these indicators like consumer spending and, and a tight labor market suggest that the economy is doing well, but then manufacturing, investment, and trade have been weaker. And you're focusing more on that on the second half of that, and mainly though investment. Well, look- um, And what role the, do, does the trade, whatever you want to call it, trade war, trade spat, trade, whatever, play it, in all of this? It's an added complication, but I was calling for this long before you know the trade skirmish became a trade battle. Mm-hmm. Look, we've had 10 recessions in the post-World War II experience. Mm-hmm. And so the business cycle is the business cycle at the end and then they begin. And the reality is that no two recessions are ever quite the same. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the last cycle, I frankly wasn't looking at capital goods spending surveys. I was not looking at uh, core CapEx orders numbers. I was not looking at business sentiment numbers because that's not where the bubble was. That wasn't the root cause of the angst that was going to cause the economy to tip over. The stuff I would be looking at in the last cycle would have been more consumer-oriented, housing-oriented, the stresses in the mortgage market, uh, house prices, so on and so forth. As I said before, this has more of a feel of 2001, 2002. Investment-led Right. Well, not everything goes down together in a recession, just as not everything goes up together in an expansion. Mm -hmm. So you'd be telling me, well, you know, the economy seems pretty strong, and yet housing has been in contraction mode for five straight quarters. So there's been other segments of the economy that have offset that, but not everything goes up together in an expansion. Not everything goes down together in a recession. But you see, once you shock one of these components of GDP with a lag, it starts to affect other parts. There is a whole multiplier impact that goes on. It's just like the human body. You affect one part, ultimately with a lag, it affects other parts of your body. GDP is a body called the economy. So I think that what happened this cycle was the bubble is not on household balance sheets. The bubble's not in the banks. The bubble is on corporate balance sheets. Mm-hmm. And what people will say is they'll say, well, you know, oh, but there's no been no excess capital investment. And that's true, like in the dot-com era, massive excess uh, mm, capacity. Dark bandwidth. Yeah. And so, you know, we wrapped the world many times over with fiber optics. Mm. When people say, oh, well, there's no excesses because uh, there was not a major excessive 
capital investment cycle that created all this excess capacity totally misses the point. The bubble is on corporate balance sheets and the money didn't go into the real economy. It went into share buybacks. Yeah. You see, this is the perfect symmetry. The symmetry is this. The symmetry is called $4 trillion. $4 trillion of QE equaled $4 trillion of corporate bond issuance equaled $4 trillion of share buybacks. This is one of the weakest capital spending cycles on record. In fact, you have to think to yourself, how is it with interest rates this slow for this long that when you're a typical CEO of a company, what could possibly have been your ex-ante expected rate of return on invested capital in your company? borrowing at such low rates. No, instead, I'm not going to invest organically in my company. I'm actually going to go buy back my stock. And this is really comes down to how perverse the incentive system is because CEOs get paid on what? They get paid on earnings per share. So this is the mother of all share buyback mm -hmm. cycles. So that's where the bubble is. And I would say that you can argue that at least six or 700 points on the S&P 500 have come just from the buybacks this cycle. This certainly hasn't come strictly from dollar billions of earnings, but the fact that the share count in the S&P 500 has been taken down to a two-decade low. And what about corporate debt, too, which well, has been used in support of that as well? Well, that's what I'm talking about. Oh. So the $4 trillion of debt issued to buy back $4 trillion of stock, and you see what the Fed did this cycle was they took out of from quantitative easing they took $4 trillion of safe assets out of the system. Right. And they left a vacuum. Treasuries. They left a vacuum, right. They left a vacuum for the corporate sector to issue this debt. And this is why it's not about the banks. The banks became regulated utilities and were constrained this cycle. Right, um, exactly. They the public. And so, so they were relying on the bond market to fund the corporates. And so right now we have the most stretched corporate balance sheets on record. The corporate debt to GDP ratio is, is over 50%. You look at corporate debt to sales, corporate debt to EBITDA. You can normalize corporate debt by any measure you want. You can even strip out the cash, which of course is concentrated among a few companies. The story doesn't change. We have the most over-leveraged corporate sector in recorded history. Hmm. And so the point I was making is that because of that, we also have the junkiest investment grade bond market. The investment grade market, say, is a $6 trillion market. Half of that is in triple Bs. Triple Bs right now comprise half of the investment grade market. And they're on the precipice if they get downgraded to be pushed into junk bonds. What's very interesting is that a third of this triple B slice already has a debt EBITDA ratio that is higher than it is in the entire high yield universe. So they already have a junk balance sheet, but they're not rated as junk yet. So you come out of a Fed tightening cycle. And that's a and direct consequence of the search for yield. Yeah, it's a direct consequence from the search for yield on the part of investors because they soaked up this debt. But then again, this is a liability on corporate balance sheets. This is going to be the year where they're going to have to meet uh, their debt servicing schedule. This is the first year or five years where we have a tsunami of, uh, of maturities. Up. You know, three quarters of the corporate uh, market rolls over in the next five years starting this year. So this is where the rubber meets the road. So you're either going to stay current on your interest payments or you're going to default or get downgraded coming out of a Fed tightening cycle. And this was a very pernicious one, by the way. The Fed hasn't even done anything yet except just talk. But when you count in quantitative tightening and then you count in the nine rate hikes, it's as if the Fed tightened policy 
by about 375 basis points this cycle. That's very significant. Taking into account the quantitative tightening. Taking into account the balance sheet. That's the the de facto equivalent tightening. More often than not, with a lag, and those lags can be anywhere from 12 to 36 months. You know, I tend to find, I speak to people that, you know, everybody lives in the here and now, they can't see the tip of their nose, and if the recession is not staring in the face, then it's not going to happen. And I remember that, you know, back in 1989, 80-89, the Fed tightened, people thought, you know, we're going to extend the cycle. Recession's 1990. Because of the lags. The lags are between 12 and 36 months. People tend to forget about that. Uh, People thought we were going to be just fine. The Fed tightened in 99 and 2000. Uh, Next thing you know, March of 01, we're in a recession. The Fed tightened 04, 05, and 06. And uh, nobody sees a recession that starts in the end of 07. So, and the thing is too, when you come off these dramatic easing cycles, and remember, we had seven years of free money in this country, you're invariably going to get the bubble. And as Woodward and Bernstein were told by Deep Throat to follow the money, after these prolonged easing cycles, we have to follow the bubble. The bubble this time is not in the mortgage market. The bubble this time is not in the housing market. The bubble this time is not in the banks. It's in the non-banks. It's on non-financial corporate balance sheets. And that's where the bubble is. The fact that it didn't go into capital investment to me is immaterial. It went under stock buybacks. It's very interesting. And you can only imagine what happens if that train starts to move the other direction. Now, I said before, there's no get-out-of-jail-free card after an extended Fed tightening cycle, especially one that was as pernicious as what we came off of, and now it's finished. But now we're in this no-man's land where the Fed's on hold, and the Fed will eventually, probably by the end of next month, start to cut interest rates. But just remember that the Fed started cutting interest rates in September of 2007, (laughs) and the recession started two months later, right? The Fed started cutting interest rates. And the Fed went 50 basis points on January 3rd of 2001. People have to remember this. History matters. They cut rates 50 basis points on the first business day of the year on January of 2001. And the recession started two months later. (laughs) So it's a case of be careful what you wish for. When the Fed is forced to cut interest rates, it's almost like a mea culpa, an admission that we went too far. Now, look, maybe we'll luck into a soft landing where the economy just meanders and slows and doesn't ultimately (laughs) contract. I give that 15% odds. There's no such thing as a sure thing. But I think a recession has 85% odds. I think it's the overwhelming base case, but I'm not going to say that it's the only case. But the point I'm making is that companies are going to have a decision to make. And the decision is going to be to cut back on CapEx to stay current in terms of their debt obligations. And you're seeing that across all the surveys. You're seeing that across the data. And you're seeing that across the leading indicators. Are we seeing companies rush to refinance now? Have we seen anything like that? I mean, I haven't seen uh, anything towards a major refinancing boom. But what I am seeing that's very interesting is not that big of a movement, considering that the economy has cooled off, the yield curve has inverted, the default cycle and rating cycle has been very muted. And I think that that's what's interesting, actually. Very muted. Very. And I think I mentioned before that, say, a third of this triple B debt, which is that slice that has me most concerned, that even though a third, say, has a debt ratio that's a what you would normally see in a high yield market, only 5% of this debt is rated or has a negative credit outlook attached to them by one of the three agencies. And, you know, your uh, knee-jerk reaction would be, well, there goes the rating agencies, you know, having the uh, back of the issuer again at the expense of the investor. But mm-hmm. I don't think that's what's going on. I think what's going on is that 
the CEOs and CFOs have gone to the agencies and have shown them their capital spending plan for the year. And so the focus is on debt retirement. The focus is on debt repayment, staying current at a time when we know that we're in a mild profits recession. What comes out of that? Well, either you've got to cut back on your share buybacks. Well, that hasn't happened yet. The first thing that's happened is that they cut back on their capital spending plans. And that's what comes out of aggregate demand, otherwise known as GDP. And that is what gets the ball rolling in terms of the economic Fascinating point. I mean, it's important to just meditate on that for a moment because it's part of this larger arc towards the financialization of the economy, you know, moving away from the real economy towards the financial economy, this move in terms of share buybacks, focusing on keeping the stock price high at the expense of of capital investment. Right. Well, this all started, if you remember, back in October 19th, 1987, which, by the way, was my first day on Bay Street in Toronto as a financial economist at the Bank of Nova Scotia. And when you go back and read the transcripts of the FOMC meetings, not the minutes, the transcripts, you'll see how October 1987, the stock market collapsed. Right when Greenspan had taken over. Just Yeah, you just taken over a few months earlier. It shook them to the core. And that's when the term Greenspan put, mm. you know, was first uh, used in the financial market uh, vernacular. And so usually, you know, you had central banks moving rates around more premised on economic data than on the markets. And remember, Alan Greenspan, although he was a speechwriter for Gerald Ford and handed out whip inflation now buttons back in the early 70s, he's a markets economist, right? He was plucked out of the private sector. No, he was, very, he was very successful as well. Yeah. And uh, so he started, got the ball rolling on really having the third mandate of the Fed, you know, full employment, price stability. But he added the third one, de facto, which was financial Financial market stability. I I have your back. So what happened is that the market plunges, and Greenspan doesn't cut rates just once or twice. He cuts rates well into 1988 until it's evident that the stock market collapse didn't do anything to the economy. It was a great holiday shopping season at Christmas time. The economy just kept on ripping. The Fed found itself behind the curve and had a hike rates, 88, 89, and then ultimately we had the recession in 1990. Now, you know, we had a similar situation in the next cycle. In that cycle, in the late 80s, of course, the financial, or shall we say the asset cycle that took place, the asset and debt cycle, was in commercial real estate. We had the um, LBO craze in the late 1980s. LBOs, the proliferation of high-yield bonds. And, of course, it was the commercial real estate bubble. That was the bubble. That was the asset and debt cycle. So you're right. We moved away three decades ago from the classic business inventory cycle towards cycles that were based on asset prices. And then we moved to 10 years later to the dot-coms, and uh, we had that asset cycle. And these asset cycles, when they pop, creates a recession. And then what we know is that you don't get a V-shaped recovery. You get an elongated L-shaped recovery. It takes years to actually get into a sustainable expansion long after the official recession actually ends. It used to be, if you go back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you had V-shaped recoveries. Mm -hmm. Low interest rates worked right away. Uh, It doesn't happen that way anymore because these are asset cycles. So we had the savings and loan and commercial real estate back in the late 80s. We had the dot-coms in the early 2000s. And then, of course, we saw what happened in the last cycle. This is the fourth. There's diminishing returns. Yeah, this is the fourth you know, super debt-induced asset cycle. This, of course, was now back to the equity market and all the debt that was issued to buy back stock. Clearly unsustainable, in my opinion. But 
we know how these asset and debt cycles end. And so this is just a different one. This is not, we're not fighting the last war. This is not about savings and loans. It's not about commercial banks. It's not even about investment banks. But it could be about mutual funds. It could be ETFs. It could be insurance companies, whoever, pension funds, whoever basically is owning a lot of these corporate bonds with very low covenant quality at very tight interest rate spreads, not reflecting the underlying default and ratings risk in these securities. What are we talking about here in terms of contagion, do you think? Because we had a ton of contagion in 2008, and that was a very different, as you said, that was a consumer-led credit bubble. Well, I would say this much. My big concern is this triple B tranche. If it was just uh, we had a cycle where a whole bunch of credit got downgraded from double uh, A AA to single A or triple A to double A, I wouldn't be nearly as concerned. But what it means when you have half the investment grade market triple B, there's no maneuvering room. Your next downgrade is into a different asset class, which is called non-investment grade. Mm-hmm. And institutions that have quality mandates can't own this paper right. anymore. And so what's the law of large numbers because you're not talking about even a couple hundred billion dollars. I mean, you're talking about trillions of dollars that could be, put it this way, about a, you're talking about a trillion dollars in that triple B space. The whole high yield market is a trillion dollars. The high yield market itself could not possibly absorb what could happen if a large proportion of these triple Bs end up rolling over into high yields. So the risk is that the high yield market gets overpopulated and spreads widen out dramatically as a result. Keeping in mind that on average historically, you get downgraded from triple B, triple B minus into junk. Within five weeks, your paper is uh, valued 10% less than the day before the downgrade. So that leads to uh, a widening in credit spreads, filters back into the equity market. So the underlying cost of capital rises and creates a tightening in financial conditions that will then, of course, force the Fed to have to cut rates even more. But that's ultimately how that plays out. What about exposure to foreign debt, foreign corporate debt or foreign companies, companies like Alibaba or Tencent? Is that a concern to you? Well, I'll put it this way. This corporate bond bubble that we're talking about is, in fact, global. It's not just confined to the U.S. I'm from Canada. It's as evident there. You go across Europe. And of course, Europe has had, you know, the backstop from the ECB, which can buy right. more low-quality credits than uh, than the Fed can. Well, we didn't, even, we didn't but, even talk about Draghi's announcement yesterday. Right. But anyway, in, in answer to your question, it's a, uh, this corporate debt bubble is a global phenomenon. It's not just constrained to the United States. So you think this is the corporate debt phenomenon is top on the mind of the FOMC? Uh, I think that's where their focus yeah. is primarily. Well, you know, I mean, right now, I mean, if you listen to Jay Powell's commentary, and a lot of it was just basically answering the questions, but everybody is just talking about trade right now. Trade, trade, trade. G20, what will Xi and Trump end up meeting about? What will they tweet? Will there mm-hmm. be a kumbaya moment? You know, uh, will there be a beautiful remark and a tweet, you know, I mean, who knows? I mean, that's, uh, but I would say that if you read the speech- Seems unlikely. But if you read the minutes and you read a lot of the speeches on the economy and on the markets, you'll see that hardly a speech goes by where these FOMC officials don't talk about the excesses in the corporate credit market. And they've been rather vocal about it too. 
So it is uh, on their mind, is a top of mind. Maybe right now trade is more top of mind. You know, I take a look at the feds. Uh, they had an opportunity today. I mean, they changed the dot plots for the most part, or at least half the right. membership changed the dot plots. You want to tell plots, our, aud- our audience, for those who don't know what that is? Oh, that's... And how uh, significant is it really? It's not that significant, yeah. but it, it, it's... The media has been obsessing over it. it. It's, it's just, new. Well, it's been around for... Uh, ooh, since 2012, I think. It's just the Fed, every two meetings, gives you... Uh, you don't see which individual member is providing the forecast, but they give you an anonymous forecast of where they see interest rates going, where they see the funds rate going for this year and next year. So what happened this time around was that I think for the first time since they started doing this in 2012, you actually have some FOMC members predicting that the funds rate is going to go down from here. So that's the yeah, about half, video. eight, I think, about half, looking for a cut. Seven, seven of the eight looking for two. Two cuts. And then they still have one person looking for a hike, hike. this year. I wonder who that is. Probably Esther George. <laughs> and then you have uh, seven, I guess, that are looking for no change. So the way I read it, two things. It's a divided Fed, but the press release read very dovishly, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, look, the market was only priced 25%. They would cut rates today. So that's sort of the press conference as well. Yeah, well. yeah, and the press conference as well. But the thing that at the press conference, you know, he's really speaking for the FOMC. But the at the press, press conference, there were a few things, though, at the press conference that stuck out to me. One was he used the phrase, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, which I thought was rather interesting. And my larger takeaway from it was that the Fed is now focused on sustaining the expansion instead of normalizing policy. That's what it felt like. He had made another comment as well about how certain groups had been somewhat disadvantaged relative to others during the course of this expansion, and that now they were beginning to see the fruits of monetary policy, and he wanted to try and sustain the expansion. I think he actually used those words. Right. Okay, well, look, here's what I'll say to that. I know, I know it's, it's like motherhood, sustain the expansion. But um, <laughs> What do you mean? The Fed, well, the Fed, <laughs> the, Fed, the, Fed, the Fed always wants to sustain the right. expansion. Yeah, yeah. If you go back... Well, you, Powell was supposed to be a little bit more even-keeled. Well, well, but we'll get back to that a in a second. A but, so you'll see how much fun I have on the tarmac. If you go and look at the FOMC transcripts all the way back to the 1960s, and you go to the month the recession starts, and... At the beginning of these FOMC meetings, the Fed staff, the economic staff, produces and gives a presentation to the Fed on the economic outlook. Mm-hmm. And do you know, on the month the recession starts, these Fed staffers have never once called the recession. Mm. I'm not talking about six months earlier, a year earlier, on the month that it starts. So the view that they want to sustain the expansion, they always want to sustain the expansion. They never intentionally, I mean, maybe Paul Volcker in the first recession in the early 80s. Because he was he dealing wanted to with kill so inflation, much inflation. But, but the Fed does not want to create recessions, but they just happen to be part of the business cycle. But they don't do it intentionally. But you've got to go back. I mean, Powell raised rates nine times. And even as we sit here today, we can talk about, oh, how dovish he sounded and pivot number two and all the rest of it. But they're still draining their balance sheet. He mm-hmm. was asked today actually about that. He's still, what, $35 billion a month mm-hmm. in September. Mm-hmm. So it's funny that we're talking about, oh, the Fed's so dovish, and yet they're still doing QT, although they're tapering the QT. They're still doing quantitative tightening. It's a little bit of, it's called cognitive dissonance. If what are they doing in terms of interest on excess reserves? Well, they, they, I mean, been, they, they didn't make any fresh announcement about that today, as far as I saw. Th- so. There's been no change in that since the crisis? Um, or minimal? Just, you know, minimal changes. Mm. So I don't think that's a major part of policy. Uh, I just wonder if they might use that to try to offset some of the contraction of the balance sheet elsewhere. Well, you know, there's something to be said, I suppose, towards making it uh, more 
or incentivizing the banks uh, exactly, to, to free up, up the, the reserves to because the one thing we do know well, that's a fair point that you make because that, that could be a policy tool because we know from the latest uh, Fed senior loan officer survey that the commercial banks have been tightening up on credit right across the board. So this can incentivize them. And you're seeing it actually in the data. I mean, commercial bank lending growth uh, has really dried up, especially for commercial industrial loans. The one thing I will say, though, back to that for a second is this, that you can take the horse to water. It doesn't mean he's going to drink. If The, the corpor- horse is what in this case? It, the well, banks? The, corp- the corporate sector. Uh. So you can ease up. You can ha- create conditions for the yeah, banks sure. to want to lend more money. But if corporations are focused on balance sheet improvement and tightening their belts, at the margin, it's not going to matter Absolutely that much. Absolutely true. You know, but back to the point I was making before, A, you know, when we talk about that the Fed wants to sustain the expansion, of course, there was a very clear statement today in the press release, but that's always their goal. I mean, to me, that was almost an admission that we've over-tightened. Something else, you were right about Jay Powell, markets guy, credit markets guy, not an academic, you know, fresh face and a real world guy. And he comes in a year and a half ago and all he starts talking about is R-Star and uh, the neutral Fed funds rate. And the need, do you remember back in October, he was talking about we have to get to neutral, get there in a hurry. And what's interesting to me is this, back in 2012, and that was not a century ago, the Fed's estimate of the neutral Fed funds rate, the stable equilibrium Fed funds rate was four and a quarter percent. Can you imagine if they try to get the four and a quarter? What sort of presidential tweets we would have we would have been reading? <laughs> he'd, be, he'd be fired. But, if, but if so, he can do but, it. But over time, you see what happened is that the Fed kept on reducing that, and they got as low as two and three quarters because they realized the constraints on inflation from what from excessive indebtedness, from what the latte liberals in Davos call the fifth industrial revolution technology, aging demographics, all these things inherently structural disinflationary. So the Fed collectively takes their estimate of the long run equilibrium funds rate down to two and three quarters. What's the first thing Powell does at his first meeting last year? He not only raises the funds rate, but he actually starts to raise the neutral long-term rate. Hmm. And he goes in two steps and he goes to 3%. Oops. And now you saw what happened today that was very significant, in my opinion, was they took that rate down from two and three quarters to two and a half. That's interesting. I've done my own work on where the neutral rate is, okay? And I'm not at the Fed, but I have a different call than the Fed does. I have a different call on the Fed than the Fed has on their own interest rates because I think that they've over-tightened rather significantly. When you look at inflation for goods and services that are measurable and observable because so many of these items are imputed by the statisticians of the government. My estimate of underlying inflation in the United States is well below 1%. And when you look at the scholarly research of where the real funds rate is in real terms, it's 0.5 to 0.6. I would actually posit that the neutral funds rate is closer to 1.5% than 2.5%. And so the premise... Full 100 basis so, points. Well, this will come out on the wash, right? Like I said before, my job has always been and remains to look at the forest past the trees, okay, and to stay ahead of the curve. The Fed has made it almost their life's work to fall behind the curve mm. because they're always looking just to current data. Right. I mean, look, how can They're nobody, using lagging how, indicators. Well, how to, can nobody... How can you totally dismiss the yield curve? Mm. How can you do that? It has an 85% historical track record. It's telling you right away what's going to be happening, that the stock market will do what it's going to do because of share buybacks. The stock market's trading more like a commodity on supply and demand Mm. than it is as a real economic barometer. 
The bond market, though, that is the economic barometer. Okay, and so the plunge in yields, the inverted curve, the inverted curve along with the fact, what does a plunge in the real five-year treasury yield to 0.3% tell you, to 0.4% in the 10-year treasury yield? What does that tell you about what the bond market's telling you about economic activity is not in the Fed's forecast and not in mainstream Wall Street's forecast. What percent of the curve is inverted now? Well, there's different segments that are inverted. Of course, because you've had this big rally, the big decline in the two-year. So people will look at 530s or 210s and they'll say, oh, well, those aren't inverted. But they're only not inverted because the two-year has rallied so much on the expectation. The two-year note is screaming at the Fed to cut. The two-year note was telling the Fed you should be cutting today. Mm. But if you're taking a look at, say, Fed funds, I mean, let's Fed funds to 10-year. Let's take a look at uh, three months to 10-year. Most of the curve, at least after the 10-year part of the curve, is inverted. A lot of people I know like to look at, you know, the uh, Fed funds two years, three months, two years as a sign of of economic stress. Everybody's got their own favorite part mm. of the curve. I look at Fed funds to 10 years, and it's got a great track record, and that's telling you that uh, if the recession isn't already here, it's coming in the second half of the year, notwithstanding some of the better tone to the recent economic data. To me, that's a lot of that is just noise, especially on the production side, which is clearly in a downtrend. They also changed, didn't Powell change the some of the language recently? I think he changed the zero lower bound to effective lower bound. I, I saw th- some other language changes as well. I that got me thinking a little bit about negative interest rates. Right. Okay. So that's a great point. So the Fed staff... Last year, in the July 31st, August 1st meeting, and this rarely happens, the Fed staff gave a presentation to the FOMC. And it's not unusual for that to happen. It's unusual for it to show up in the minutes. Mm. And it was all about what you just talked about. Basically, how will the Fed fight the next recession? They're already talking about that last year without having to time it. And the answer is that they're going back down to zero. And we're going to spend more time at or near zero for the next several years for people that want to talk about Japanification you know, with all deference to the stock market, which has been breathing fumes from stock buybacks, leave that aside. Yeah, We're on I the think, path of the Japanese. Think, well, I think the world is really heading in that direction. Because and of the structural deflationary forces that you talked about earlier. There's just too much debt. Look, there's no multi- look, and, look, and the structural it, demographics it, it, if, issue. If we had had that fiscal stimulus of last year, back when Reagan did it in the mid-80s, when the federal debt ratio was 30% of GDP but at 10% and not 80 you know, there's just no multiplier impact mm-hmm. from fiscal stimulus from these gargantuan debt ratios. So I think the world is still awash in debt, and that is a fundamental constraint. Uh, that's just forcing pe- rates, econo- rates down. Well, people who are involved in the economy look at that debt as a future tax liability, so it impedes economic growth. You look, the McKinsey people have written about this, Rogoff and Reinhardt have written about this. It's not linear. Okay, but you do hit, it's it's basically what economists call the law of diminishing returns. Too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing. Where does uh, Rogoff put it? Somewhere at uh, 175%? Well, that's for total. I mean, I'm just looking at government, that's, but for look- total, yeah. But, uh, I mean, I don't know many governments as high as 175. You know, maybe Italy's getting up there, mm. or, or yeah. uh, but I don't think even that they're that high. But, look, the reality is that when you're taking a look at the level of outstanding debt globally, at starting, you know, right now vis-a-vis the peak of the last cycle, and you're taking a look at the level of debt now vis-a-vis where was the peak of the last cycle. I mean, the level of debt, the increase in the debt in the past decade from the peak in 07 has outpaced the increase in nominal GDP globally by a factor of four. Mm. 
that acts the fundamental constraint on growth. That acts the fundamental constraint on inflation. You need more and more debt to generate a dollar of GDP. It's, yeah, it's the law of diminishing returns. That's a the very marginal, dangerous trend. And, and look, my good friend Lacey Hunt has written a lot about this. It's fundamentally deflationary. And that's one of the reasons why this neutral funds rates come down so much. Now, back to your point about the negative funds rate, if you actually go on the various Fed District Bank websites, you'll find that some of them are beginning to talk about the potential for negative rates mm-hmm. in the next cycle. That is, a, they're going to have to get more and more aggressive. We were talking about this before, about these asset and debt cycles. And you can see that each time, the Fed has to get more and more powerful. You go back to that period in the early 90s. The Fed takes the funds rate from a peak of 9 and 7 eighths down to 3. In the next cycle, to fight the dot-com, they go from 6.5% down to 1. Then in the last cycle, they went from 5 and a quarter down to 0. You see, look at the symmetry here. 9 and 7 eighths to 3, 6.5% to 1. Yeah, and no, I've, seen those. To I've zero. seen those. And actually with QT, yeah. with QE, sorry, this synthetic negative rate, it went to negative 5%. You see how more aggressive they have to get with these debt and asset cycles. And the Fed normally cuts the funds rate 500 basis points to fight a recession. Their starting point is less than two and a half. Mm -hmm. So they're going to have to get to negative rates somehow. Either they will have to do even more powerful QE, or we will go to negative interest rates and people will say, well, it didn't exactly work in Europe, so why would you do it here in the States. And, uh, well, the banking system is much stronger. I mean, for all the warts and pimples and scars, the stress tests were, you know, were more robust and uh, the U.S. banks much better capitalized than the European counterparts. But if you want to scare people into spending money, which is what you want to do, then you'll basically put a tax on money. You know, we did an episode where we, either I or, or my guest, I can't remember who thought of it, but we compared the mechanics of interest rate cuts to the mechanics of classical versus quantum physics. Because things change as you get below zero. And it could have perverse effects. If you are a pensioner, if you're someone who needs to save, you could end up saving more money, spending less, because you're losing more, because you're paying interest to have a bank hold your money. Or you could take the money out of the banking system entirely and start storing it in your own safe or in your own basement or under your your mattress, right? What I really want to point to is there is a logic that seems to exist in terms of how things work that's very mechanical in a very classical way that Fed economists and media pundits rely on when they do the analysis. I just wonder if that really holds as we go lower and lower and as we go below zero. Well, you know, everything is in theory. So... But you see what I'm saying? Well, it might not... Look, it might backfire, but... If negative rates were to backfire, they'll just try something else. Do you not see what right. happened in the last cycle? They started with new acronyms. They had TAF mm. and they had TALF. They went to zero. Then they decided on QE. Yeah. Okay. Now they didn't do the big bomb, which was debt monetization, mm. right? The so-called money finance tax cut, which earned Ben Bernanke the moniker Helicopter Ben and that famous speech he gave in November of 2002. They were supposed to go to QE back then, but they got as low as 1% of the funds rate, and then next thing you know, we had a massive housing bubble in our hands. So the QE started seven years later, and then they did not just one round, two rounds of QE, three rounds of QE, Operation Twist. They're going to try everything. So they'll try negative rates. If it doesn't work, they'll try something else. They'll do more QE. You know, look, the Fed is increasingly becoming politicized. 
and maybe the charter will change to allow them to buy more assets than just triple well, mortgages the question, and right? treasuries. Because the real just pro- like the ECB. Well, the Fed is going to be very aggressive. Just, just think. As I said before, think proportionally how more aggressive they've had to be. Think outside the box as to what they're going to be doing. Lyle Brainerd, who's one of the senior governors on the Fed, gave a speech a couple of months ago where she talked about targeting yields out the curve. So never mind just taking short-term rates down to zero. Short-term rates going to zero only matter insofar as they're successful in taking interest rates down across the curve. And the Fed did this back in the 1950s, just the threat. And saying we're going to pin the 10-year note yield at 75 basis points or something along those lines. Now, you know, maybe will it work? It will, maybe it won't. What does that do to bank lending? Well, you know, it's you know those sorts of rates are not exactly great news for the banks, as you've seen how the banks have been responding to these ultra-low rates in Europe. The key, and you though, add to that also if they lower interest on excess reserves, how that impacts that as well. Right. It's a well, double whammy it, in a way. Look, the reason why it's failed in Europe is that these policies have just failed to ignite a sustainable money and credit flow into the real economy. I think that this is why this uh, modern monetary theory is so interesting. It's just a different form of uh, It's fascinating that it's gotten about. so much traction as a credible solution. Well, I can see it happening. You know, A, I don't believe in fairy tales, and uh, I don't believe in the tooth fairy. I believe in the business cycle. And I think this one is coming to an end very quickly quickly, in my opinion. And the Fed is already behind the curve. The bond markets told you that, and they're going to have to be very aggressive. People tend to forget that before QE, they did a lot of other stuff, and they will do a lot more. They won't have a choice. And so, I mean, they call it modern monetary theory because it's some Democrats' way to help fund infrastructure or green technology. But really, it's quite simple. It's called debt monetization. Right. It's so old. It's written up in the Old Testament. I mean, basically, you know, the Treasury puts a $5 trillion perpetual coin or a century bond on the Fed's balance sheet. The Fed prints $5 trillion and gives it to the Treasury to do with it what they want. Right. And so they will retire student debt. Well, maybe that will finally remove a major obstacle for the housing market, which never fully recovered this cycle outside of the initial years when we had this buy for rent cycle. The first time buyer, which historically has driven the market, never showed up. The first time buyer went AWOL. Well, because of this huge albatross of student debt. Now, I know people will have problems with that. How can you bail out the sinners? My Lord, we removed Emmanuel Kant and Calvinist thought from that in the last cycle when we bailed out the mortgagers. Right. So there's different things you could do with that money, okay? You can bypass Congress. You can actually, you know, give out vouchers with uh, expiry dates on it and get people. The whole thing is to get a multiplier impact on spending. The one thing I think that has to happen, okay, is we have to reduce the size of the debt, and not just the public debt, but also the private debt. How's that going to happen without there being a recession? As I was talking about before, belt tightening the private sector and the corporate sector is going to trigger a reduction in capital spending. Coupled with inflation. And And there's a lot at stake here. Look, there's a lot at stake globally. When you think about how fragile politically from a society standpoint. Think how fragile the world is right now. Mm. We've, global trade flows are in retreat. Global direct investment flows have contracted now three years in a row. The world is- And those, the impacts of those the, things are nonlinear and, 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 as well. And, and, and look, you've got these populist, nationalist, xenophobic. Mm. Donald Trump was really, um, you know, more of a symptom of what's happening globally. It's interesting that it happened the same year of Brexit. 
and the populist wave that you've seen across Europe. And so the world Geopolitical is tensions too. Those, well, are, those are a huge deal. Just the wide divide. I think that people have to dust off their history books because if this is what we see, if this level of societal tension, look within the United States itself. I don't remember a time when the country was this divided. And when you think about what's happening in terms of the hate and the racial situation, this is at the peak of the economic cycle. This is at a 3.6% unemployment rate. And we just this had a bunch peak. of tax cuts. So, yeah, but imagine what happens. Imagine what happens. I'm talking about from a strictly, you know, what this means for society in general, since social stability. And I'm talking globally, not just the United States. If all this happens at the peak of the cycle and the low unemployment, think what happens when we cross the other side of the mountain. So a lot is at stake here beyond just what does the stock market do, credit markets, bond yields, the dollar. A lot is at stake here. And I think that the Fed, I mean, uh, I would have had a problem with the Fed cutting rates today. And the stock market You would bubble, not have. If they would have cut rates today, I would have said, good on you. Okay. But maybe that's just too much. You think it's, it's too- much more serious than markets and pundits and even the Fed perhaps are, are appreciating at the moment. I think that the economy has a really soft underbelly. I mean, you strip out, you know, you strip out the soybean exports and the inventories and declining imports, real private final demand in the first quarter was barely better than a 1% annual rate. And so if Atlanta Fed is right, maybe we're close to 2% because the consumer hung in really well. But housing is in a recession. Commercial construction is in a recession. And the recession in capital spending, I think, started in the first quarter of this year from already fairly weak base. When you think about the one thing that should have propelled the economy to new heights last year would have been capital spending because the tax cuts really geared towards the business sector. Well, guess what? They got diverted to stock buybacks. Mm. That's been a huge story. David, I want you to stick around. I want to do an overtime with you. For our regular listeners, you know the drill. For new listeners, you head over to hiddenforces.io slash subscribe or straight to patreon.com slash hiddenforces. And you can find out about our overtime subscription as well as access to our transcripts and rundowns. David, for people who aren't familiar with your work, how can they follow you on Twitter? And also, how can they get your your different newsletters, your monthly newsletters, your espressos and uh, and your breakfasts. Well, I've been writing a daily since uh, 1998, and it's called Breakfast with Dave. I actually do two early in the morning. One's called Espresso with Dave, and that's a waker-upper. And then there's Breakfast with Dave. And, you know, feel free to to Google it. It'll flash up right away Mm -hmm. if you ever just Google Breakfast with Dave. What you can do is you can email me, and uh, the email is uh, drosenberg at gluskinchef.com. So it's D-R-O-S-E-N-B-E-R-G at G-L-U-S-K-I-N-S-H-E-F-F dot com. I know that's a mouthful. Or call me directly at uh, 416-681-8919, and uh, I'd be happy to at least start you off with a complimentary publication. And I'll have a link to David's website in the, uh, the summary of this podcast. Thank you so much, David, and let's switch over to the overtime. Terrific. And that was my episode with David Rosenberg. I want to thank David for being on my program. Today's episode of Hidden Forces was recorded at Creative Media Design Studio in New York City. For more information about this week's episode, or if you want easy access to related programming, visit our website at hiddenforces.io and subscribe to our free email list. If you want access to overtime segments, episode transcripts, and show rundowns full of links and detailed information 
related to each and every episode, check out our premium subscription available through the Hidden Forces website or through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hidden forces. Today's episode was produced by me and edited by Stylianos Nicolaou. For more episodes, you can check out our website at hiddenforces.io. Join the conversation at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hidden Forces Pod, or send me an email at dk at hiddenforces.io. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.